when is a building worth saving? This can be a controversial question, even among preservationists. Greg Gaylor, the executive director of the Boston Preservation Alliance, joins us today to share his perspective on that very question. Greg has worked to preserve many examples of mid-century modern brutalist architecture like Boston City Hall. Should exposed concrete structures be preserved the same as 19th century estates? It's a brutal question, but let's talk about it on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Greg Gaylor, who is currently the executive director of the Boston Preservation Alliance. Greg is a native of Boston, a passionate preservationist, and has worked in a variety of different positions in the nonprofit history and preservation community, everything from working at the New Bedford Whaling Museum to the Stonehill Industrial Center, as well as the Valentine Museum down here in uh, the south in Richmond, Virginia. Greg holds degrees in American Civilization from Brown, as well as a PhD in the History and Social Study of Science and Technology from MIT, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But today, we're going to be talking with Greg about trying to protect the mid-century and resources associated with both mid-century structures as well as brutal structures and brutalism, and so we'll talk a little bit about what all that means. But first and foremost, Greg, it's great to have you with us today. Well, good to talk with you, Nick. So you have this fantastic resume working in all these really fun, exciting, interesting places. Obviously, there's there's passion for history. What got you engaged? When did you really move on this path towards being involved in all of this as a career? Um, my real focus really began as an undergraduate, but at that time I started reflecting back. And actually, up here in Boston, we're starting to talk about the 250th uh, anniversary of the formation of the country, and really the bicentennial. When I was in elementary school, really, I think, planted a seed. I had a teacher in junior high school who really encouraged us to go out and look at historic sites and some more obscure ones. And being up here in Massachusetts, there's certainly plenty to go around. But as really as an undergrad, I was thinking I was going to major in physics and math and did that for a while and then started to realize I could do history of industry and, and history of technology, which really sort of melded that longstanding interest in history with the sort of science-y part of my brain. So it really goes back about 30 years. Sort of started in the more on the museum side than the preservation side? Yes and no. I mean, as an undergraduate, I had actually did some preservation work and did some survey work in Rhode Island. The Blackstone Valley National Historic Corridor had just been established, and that's an old industrial river, basically, that runs from Providence north up into Massachusetts. And I was lucky enough to connect with a professor who was doing some survey work. So I was doing field work from the very beginning of my career, but the first job I ended up getting was down at the Valentine Museum down in Richmond. So it was a, a museum job curating and sort of building their industrial history collection. But within a year, I was managing transforming a 19th century ironworks into a new museum site and working with architects and archaeologists in the SHPO's office. So it's always been a blend of museum and preservation work. And now, how long have you been with the Boston Preservation Alliance? How long have you been back in Boston? I've been around Boston. You know, I was only in Richmond for a few years back in the late 80s, early 90s. 
and I've been back in the Boston area, but I've been here at the Preservation Alliance five years uh, this fall. And why don't you give us, just so people are familiar, I mean, we talk to different heads of preservation groups around the country, and they're all kind of different in their own ways. What does the Boston Preservation Alliance look like? What kind of an organization is it? What do you focus on? What's your uh, the kind of work that you do? Uh, yeah, so we're a small, nonprofit, uh, independent historic preservation advocacy organization. So we don't own any property like many of the organizations you and I know well. We are straight up advocacy and education. We're uh, about a 40-year-old organization. Next year, we'll hit 40 years. Small, I mean, our annual budget's only a little over $300,000, about three and a half FTE for staff. And we're very engaged throughout the city of Boston itself. So we don't work outside of Boston except on some national issues like the historic tax credit or, you know, some things that are pertinent to Boston. But for the most part, it's Boston issues. And we really summarize our work with a little tagline that we like to use, which is we're about protecting places, promoting vibrancy, and preserving character. And that really came out of a strategic planning effort we did a couple of years ago. And it was very thoughtfully constructed. Uh, we like to say that we're not about stopping change in the city, but we're about thoughtful change. And how do you integrate preserving the unique things about the unique character of Boston that actually drive many successes here and the growing population here. How do you promote preserving those unique things while allowing the city to continue to evolve and grow? Uh, we have a fairly large board of 27, a very strong young advisors board for professionals 40 and under, and we're an umbrella organization. So we have 40 organizational members that are part of us that run the gamut from small local historical societies through many of the iconic uh, Freedom Trail sites here in Boston, through some of the large museums like the Museum of Fine Arts. And we're supported by a, a very strong corporate network, as well as individuals. We have 104 corporate members. And to me, that's really important because it, those include some of the largest developers and architects in the city. And it really signals that preservation is something for everyone, that we're not you know, crazy people trying to stop the city from changing, but uh, that it's something that floats all boats for the success of the city. So it's a good segue into what we wanted to talk about today, because I think for a lot of people, when they think of Boston, they think of the Freedom Trail and these fantastic 18th and, and early 19th century resources, and you're certainly flush with those. I know that Boston Preservation Alliance has been involved in trying to protect things of a, a more recent lineage, in particular, mid-century modern architecture, brutalism. For people listening, why don't you give us your definition of, I suppose, brutalism or mid-century resources, some good examples maybe from Boston that you guys have been involved with? Sure. Well, as you know, I mean, the definition's tricky, and the name itself causes is maybe the root of many of the problems. Yeah, it doesn't help. No, it doesn't help. And, you know, just so people listening who don't know, I mean, brutalism makes people think of brutal, and that's how many of those, these buildings feel on initial introduction to them. But it's really a false cognate. The word has nothing to do with brutal. It's really a French term. It come, well, there's, some, there's apparently some debate about where it really comes from. But there's a French term, breton brut, of course, my French is terrible, which effectively means raw concrete. It's really about the fact that many of these brutalist buildings are concrete, raw-formed, and you can see the form finish of the wood or however that was done. But, you know, the origins of brutalism really go back to the 1950s, and Le Corbusier became popular here in the 60s. And I think these are buildings that are admittedly hard to love. They're often kind of cold. Many of them weren't 100% successful, and they do have challenges. And I think, you know, we've seen here in Boston 
particularly with our Boston City Hall, which I'm, we'll probably get into in detail, but it's a building that kind of had suffered a bit from a downward spiral on that, you know, people didn't like it. Our long-term mayor didn't like it, so he didn't take care of it. And the building just starts to look worse and worse and become harder and harder to appreciate and love when people aren't taking care of it. And why do people say that they don't like it? You've probably heard a lot about that, but what was it about these buildings that people tend not to like? Well, I mean, you know, concrete is not necessarily a warm and fuzzy material, unlike, you know, we have a lot of brick here in Boston and a lot of wood and a lot of nice stone of various types. You know, if you compare Boston City Hall to something like uh, Trinity Church designed by Richardson, which is very ornate and nice warm brownstone, it's very much apples and oranges. I think the other thing is the setting of many of these buildings in Boston City Hall in particular suffers from the fact that it's surrounded by a plaza that's a large expanse of of brick with really no support for it. It's It's an aspect of the design that didn't really work. It was never really fully completed as proposed. So sometimes there's a conflation of challenges with the building and challenges with the site. The buildings are very angular in many regards. I think many of the design elements that are actually really fascinating are not obvious to the viewer. And I bring this up not infrequently with some new designs that we we look at for new construction when the architects have these kind of obtuse explanations for their things. I said, well, don't forget City Hall because, you know, if you have to explain it to someone so aggressively, that that point (laughs) is going to be missed on most people. Uh, So I think that's some of the challenges. and And I think we have turned a corner or starting to turn a corner on this. And I think people are starting to appreciate these buildings more within their historic context and within some of the more subtle elements that have sort of been lost uh, when people have just been sort of frustrated by their initial impression. And, And Boston City Hall has been sort of challenged from its beginning. The architects loved it. The broader community has always been a little more uh, suspect. And I think that that's kind of the case with a a lot of these brutalism structures from all across the country. You hear things like that where, you know, the the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building, you know, there's been people who haven't liked it from the beginning, and there's been people who have been in love with it from the beginning, and I guess that's like any building. But as an organization that does preservation advocacy, was this your sort of first jump into trying to protect something a little bit more recent? Was it difficult to make that decision to say, okay, we're going to stick our neck out for something that a lot of people love to hate? Well, I mean, for City Hall specifically, I mean, that path had already been led before I started here because there was a long-standing battle to try to keep it. So, you know, I don't know what the discussion was here early on, but I know that there are a number of buildings, and and maybe we should come back to City Hall, but talk about some other buildings here in Boston that are actually better liked. And And I think it's also important to point out and remind folks that like isn't really a measurable term and not something that we really focus on in preservation, right? You know, whether you like it or not really isn't the measure of whether we should preserve it. It helps to like it and enjoy it. But I'm often reminding, particularly in the context of some of these brutalist buildings, that it wasn't long ago that Victorian buildings were despised and torn down left and right. And it's appalling to think of today. And, you know, when you tell people that, sometimes it gets them to think a little bit a little bit differently. But we have uh, the Christian Science Center here in Boston that was built in uh, 1971, 72, that was designed by Cassetta and uh, I.M. Pei and his team, which is very much loved, very successful. It's a, an interesting complex of buildings, and it's really considered the sort of the whole complex that actually has been landmarked. And, you know, we could talk about that as well in terms of these newer buildings and how you protect them. Generally, we think of the 50-year rule, but we do have some examples here in Boston that are less than 50 years that have been formally landmarked to provide some protections. 
And the Christian Science Center is actually a place I've loved since I was a kid. It's got a big reflecting pool. It's got a one major historic building, which is sort of the mother church of the Christian Science Group, as well as a, an older building that was their publishing house. And then in the 70s, major expansion of that site. But uh, that's one that people really like here in Boston. We recently uh, had actually just awarded, uh, Philip Johnson did a 1970-ish addition to our Boston Public Library, which is a McKim-Weedon-White building, considered very important in architecture in the country, the McKim-Weedon-White. Johnson did this addition, which has similarly never really worked very well for a whole variety of reasons. And there's just been a major renovation and change to that that's been very warmly received. So I think part of this is understanding that these buildings can change and adapt and preservation for them and how you do that and, and what you allow and don't is, you know, often very different from what you would consider for, you know, the Paul Revere house that we have here in Boston, which is a, a totally different kind of animal. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a quick break right here? And then maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about how you do go about preserving these places and, and how to build public support for that and how all that comes together. And we'll do that when we return right here on PreserveCast. If you've been in a store or watched television in the last two months, you probably are aware that we are approaching Christmas. But as I record this, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is currently underway. Hanukkah celebrations in America have changed significantly from when the first Jewish settlers arrived in Maryland in the mid-17th century. Historically a minor holiday, Hanukkah gained new relevance in the American melting pot due to its proximity to Christmas. And I thought we could talk a little about the history of how Hanukkah came to be the way it is today. Also called the Festival of Lights, many of you are probably already familiar with the story of Hanukkah. It commemorates the victory of the Maccabees, a Jewish rebel group against the Greco-Syrian king Antiochus IV. As the army entered the temple in Jerusalem and began reconstructing it, their leader, Judah Maccabee, ordered that the menorah, a sacred candelabrum, be lit. They quickly realized, however, that they only had enough oil to last a single night, and it would take eight nights for more oil to be brought to the temple. In spite of this, the oil lasted all eight nights, and the menorah was kept alight. The event was pronounced a miracle, and remembered every year thereafter through the holiday of Hanukkah. As more and more Jewish immigrants arrived to the United States, Baltimore being one of the largest ports, and attempted to integrate with local populations, they did all they could to preserve their own traditions while sharing in Christian American culture. For example, the traditions of gift-giving at Hanukkah developed largely in response to Christmas gift-giving. In fact, the idea of giving gifts on Hanukkah besides gelt, the traditional chocolate pieces wrapped in gold foil to look like coins, didn't really develop until the 1950s, when both rabbis and secular leaders in the Jewish community suggested gift-giving as a method of making Jewish children feel happy and proud of their heritage in a post-Holocaust world. Other aspects of the holiday developed to mirror Christmas as well. Hanukkah decorations became more prominent in the mid-20th century, with blue, silver, and yellow becoming popular choices to help brand the holiday. Similar to the red and green of Christmas, colors which themselves only became synonymous with the holiday in the 1930s, in part due to an advertising campaign from Coca-Cola. Anyway, if you're in the Baltimore area, you may still be able to see a more recent local Hanukkah tradition before the eight-day holiday ends on Wednesday the 20th. In McKeldon Square in Baltimore City, there's a 30-foot-tall menorah erected in honor of Esther Ann Brown Adler as part of the Baltimore Hanukkah Festival, 
which has been lit every year since 2010. Anyway, that was a lot, and I better wrap things up before you guys get burned out and let you get back to PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Greg Gaylor, the executive director of the Boston Preservation Alliance, and we've been talking with Greg about protecting all things associated with the more recent past, mid-century brutalism, and how to build support for places that, you know, arguably some people don't like, and, uh, and, and of course some do, and how we do that and why it, why it matters. Greg, before we took our break, you, you were giving us a good list of different places that you've been involved in. I also know I, I read about the Sitgo sign. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I think that falls probably under that same category, although different from the kind of architecture we're talking about, of course. Right, right. Now, the Sitgo sign is an interesting one. Many people around the country know it, but certainly here in New England, it is well known. It's a 60 by 60 foot sign, originally neon, converted to LEDs, uh, I think first about 15 20 years ago. It sits near Fenway Park. It sits at about mile uh, 25 of the Boston Marathon. It's visible from the Charles River, where the major rowing event head of the Charles is held. It's literally a landmark for Boston in terms of people literally navigate by it. It's remarkable how many places you can see this thing from. And it's the big Sitco trimark, that big red triangle with the word Sitco in blue underneath it, two-sided sign. Interestingly, it's sits on a building that's not owned by Sitco. It doesn't even sit anywhere near a, a, a gas station. But, you know, for here in Boston, it's really, in terms of sort of identifying icons here in Boston or as well as nationally. So if there's a national sporting event or something and they, you know, show scenes of the city, they'll show old Ironsides, you know, the, the, the ship from the War of 1812. They'll show the Bunker Hill Monument or the State House or the Paul Revere House or the Swan Boats or the Sitco sign. It's really been elevated to that level of, a signifier for Boston. You see a lot of people wearing shirts and hats with the red triangle. Some say sit goes, some don't. And that sign was threatened last year. It was actually uh, is actually on a roof of another building that was owned by Boston University. They decided to sell the property. We didn't want to lose the sign. So it's been this sort of protracted effort to protect the sign and work with the new property owner who wants to redevelop some of that property. That area of town, Kenmore Square, is sort of on the cusp of significant reinvestment nearby has had a lot. So how do we do that in a way that protects the sign? It's very challenging. Uh, We have a landmark petition to formally protect it within the city ordinance that's pending, but it's got a whole host of challenging issues that on the legal sense, and, you know, you're trying to protect something on a building that's on a sign that's rented from somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. We did an online petition and we got, you know, thousands, I think we got 16,000 signatures or something of people who want to support uh, the landmarking of that sign. Which is is a fantastic story, and it sounds like it's to be continued there, so people can check in with the Boston Preservation Alliance to find out how that plays out. But I think the point that you just made there at the end, where you said there were 16,000 people who signed on, suggests that preserving these sorts of resources, whether they be an iconic sign of the more recent past or or a, a building like the Christian Science Center, one that you were talking about, which is beloved, 
there can be a lot of support publicly for doing this kind of work. It's not as if everyone is opposed to the idea of protecting things from the mid-century or, or the more recent past. But I'm just kind of curious, to that point, what have you found that has worked well for the Preservation Alliance in terms of trying to save these places? What, what are some experiences that you've had that maybe you would offer to other people who are thinking about doing this in their own community and trying to protect a, a more recent resource? I think part of it is getting people to look at these places differently and understand them better. I think understanding is a first step and get people to move off of their knee-jerk reaction to these buildings. I think that's one important aspect. You know, Boston City Hall, if you start explaining to people its origins in the period when Boston was greatly in decline in the you know late 50s into the early 60s, it was really a dying city, white flight, lack of investment. There was really no construction going on in Boston. It's hard to think of that today because Boston is so vibrant and so successful. But that wasn't all that long ago. And, you know, the downsides of, of the Boston City Hall effort was it, it wasn't an outgrowth of urban renewal. We did lose some significant resources, effectively lost a neighborhood, but it was also a turning point for the city of investment. So I think getting people to understand the history of these buildings and where they came from and why they are what they are. I mean, Boston City Hall was really designed to sort of upend the understanding of what a city hall should be. It actually reflects some classical design in terms of what a city-focused government place should be. Interestingly, the mayor's office literally hangs over the sidewalk. The city council chamber similarly is in a sort of a block that hangs out over the plaza. So getting people to understand these buildings differently, getting people to understand that oftentimes many of the things they don't like about them is a result of lack of care and lack of investment. And if these buildings were actually cared for and cleaned up, they would have a different perspective. And thankfully, here in Boston, with City Hall, with the change of administration, uh, Mayor Walsh, who came in four years ago, was just reelected, actually initially campaigned on a continued effort to get rid of City Hall and to sell it and move city government somewhere else. And thankfully, through uh, some means I understand and some I don't, some were economic, you know, the realities of the building and its site turned a corner and said, well, you know, let's see if we can make the best of this building. And has been making some, you know, with our support and encouragement, some incremental changes that have started to change people's perspectives. One was a lighting program. They needed to upgrade a bunch of the lighting. So they actually saved money by going to LED, but did some colored lighting scheme that started to change some people's perspective. Some really inexpensive things outside the building to get people to engage with it differently. So some of them on some level were kind of silly, but they're cheap and have worked some artificial turf and some cheap picnic tables and Adirondack chairs that I think they bought from Home Depot. You know, during the summer, there are actually people <laughs> hanging out there having lunch, you know, and if, you know, five, six years ago, you said people are looking for tables and not able to find them at City Hall Plaza for, for lunch, they would be surprised. So there's been a number of things like that that have helped. And then incremental investments, they just redid one of the major lobbies and made some changes that are making the building work a little better, look a little better. I think that's one thing I would definitely recommend is, is there a way to do some incremental changes, start to change people's perspective about their relationship with these buildings? I think that makes a huge difference. And I, I guess placemaking as well, which is kind of what you're talking about, which is trying to activate spaces around these buildings. And perhaps there was some aspect of the original design or, or the implementation of it that didn't quite work. And it's, it's okay to kind of adapt and make that work a little bit better, like putting a picnic table in a formerly blank space. Right, right. I think placemaking is a huge part of it. I mean, I'll go back to the Boston Public Library piece. Also understanding that the context of these buildings has changed over time. When Philip Johnson designed this addition to the, to the main branch of the Boston Public Library, the neighborhood in which it was located was not a place you really wanted to hang out. Now it's one of the most successful 
urban shopping areas in the country, very vibrant. But when Johnson did it, the windows on all the first floor were basically covered with granite plinths. They have these sort of granite walls because the library is considered a place to go and isolate yourself from the not very fun urban environment. Well, that's changed over time. And Although that building was landmarked long before it was 50 years old, the landmarking recognized that some changes would need to happen and maybe those granite walls could come down. And that's what happened. The building's been reopened. Its interface between that building and the historic McKinney and White building was enhanced. And it's now hugely successful as a place for people to go hang out. There's a cafe inside. There's a Actually, WGBH, which is based here in Boston, has a recording studio inside that's utilized. So changing people's interaction with these spaces. Part of the reason the Christian Science Center I mentioned earlier works so well is it is a great urban place. It was designed well from the get-go. Yeah, and I guess that kind of gets to your point where you're talking about how the Preservation Alliance sees themselves as a group that manages change well and, and trying to find the best ways to use place. And it's not just freezing everything in time. And so it is okay for buildings to adapt. Let me ask you, though, real quick, just because you've mentioned it a couple of times, how you have been involved or are aware of efforts where landmarking has taken place with a building less than 50 years. How do you make that happen? How does that, ha- how does that work in Boston? Any insight on that process? Yeah, here in Boston, there's no formal 50-year rule within the landmarking. There needs to be a either a public petition with, I think it's 10 signatures, or a landmarks commissioner can do it on their own. And the initial petition is a sort of summary history and justification of the landmarking. It doesn't necessarily, that initial filing had to be too, too detailed, but it has to be enough to convince the Landmarks Commission that there's a reasonable chance that this property will meet the standard, which I can talk about in a second. And if that's the case, they'll vote to accept the petition and send it for further study. The staff or a consultant hired by the staff do a detailed history and justification of why the property they consider landmark worthy and what the guidelines and criteria would be to landmark it, what specific aspects can't change, what needs to come back to the commission for review, what can be changed without discussion. Uh, The standards here in Boston, one of the most challenging ones is it has to have significance beyond a local level. So if it's just a sort of Boston-only significance, uh, that's not enough. So it has to be state, regional, or national significance. And that significance can be related to architectural design, people, events, a whole host of things. So we have some landmark districts and and a number of individual landmarks as well. That study report has to then get accepted and approved by the Landmarks Commission. City Council has an opportunity to veto it, and the mayor has to sign off on it as well. So it's a process. It's a process, and it's a challenging process in particular for districts. Uh, Districts have a different methodology. They need to be a committee. And then, you know, districts then have to be managed by a district commission. So there's a sort of staff burden on the Landmarks Commission, and you have to get commissioners willing to serve. There are a couple of districts here in Boston that were actually created before that process that actually come down from the state level. So many people may know Beacon Hill, which shows up a lot in pictures of Boston where the state house is and the brownstones with the gas lights in front of them. So that was created in a different early, and uh, Back Bay is another one. And are you pursuing any less than 50-year-old nominations right now? Uh, I think the Sitco sign is the only one at the moment. Okay. And how old, roughly, is that? Oh, I knew you were going to ask. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, uh, 60s. 1960s. Perfect. Uh, maybe, maybe a little later. So it's, it depends on how you date it as well. So 60s would actually be 50 years old. I think we're just hitting 50 years now. It was, that was actually petitioned for landmarking about 20 years ago, and the landmark failed when it's come back. So... Greg, 
if people want to learn more about Boston Preservation Alliance, the work that you're doing in your city, how can they find that out? How they how can they get in touch? Well, they can certainly the easiest thing is to go to our website, bostonpreservation.org. We'll actually see uh, in the spring a new website, in part thanks to some funding from the Mo Foundation at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. But we will be launching a new website in the spring that will hopefully, the, the plan is that will actually allow people to see individual projects in our day-to-day activity more. That's one of the challenges that we have is we're working on a lot of projects, many behind the scenes, a lot of you know, a lot of position papers and letters opposing, supporting, commenting on projects that are sort of hard to navigate now. But our website is the best way and our contact information is easily findable there. Yeah, it's it's hard to sell the advocacy story sometimes because there's a lot of behind the scenes work. It's not always the simplest thing. It's not like just seeing a new roof on a historic building. No, and that's one of the biggest challenges we have as an organization. I mean, on one level, it's great that we don't own property uh, in that we can be very neutral. We don't really have any skin in the game in terms of impacting anything we're owning or developing or rehabbing. But it, it does make sort of the, the engagement and the fundraising a little harder because, yeah, with the, the pretty pictures are a little harder for us to come by. And before we we part our ways here, we're going to ask you the most difficult question, which is, what is your favorite historic building or place? And we're curious to hear what the answer is. Yeah, so this is the, which of your children is your favorite question? So I'm going to cop out and give (laughs) you a few options here. So in Boston, actually, the Christian Science Center that I've mentioned a few times is one of them, not only because of the mid-century modern aspect that really works well, but it's got some really funkiness to it. Uh, Inside one of the older buildings is something called the Maparium from 1935, which is a giant stained glass globe that you walk through the middle of, and you can see what all these countries were back in 1935. Very different, particularly in Africa. The second here in Boston is the Northern Avenue Bridge, which is something, a 1908 swing bridge that we've been working aggressively to save. We actually have been trying to save that since the 1970s, and it's still an active project. And then I thought I'd just mention two outside of Boston, one being the Brooklyn Bridge, which I think, uh, you know, for me, historic sites that tell a story and really connect with other aspects. So in the Brooklyn Bridge, you have engineering and politics and economics and the crazy effort to construct it. Uh, I think that's a place that really speaks to me. And then finally, I'll mention a Massachusetts place that people should know about and come visit, which is northeastern Massachusetts, which is a place where I lived for about 20 years and studied extensively, home to five H.H. Richardson buildings, Olmsted landscapes, and the factory complex, worker housing, and associated elements that led to the funding to create that wonderful village just south of Boston. Well, leave it to Greg Gaylor to answer a question about one favorite historic building and give us four. Uh, yeah, I, but I can never decide. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, and we appreciate all the good work that you're doing up in Boston to save these places that matter and, and to save, in a sense, uh, on the mid-century side, the landmarks of tomorrow, because we don't want someone to come along and say, can you believe they knocked down all these wonderful places, just like we talk about the Victorian and, and other eras we're leading in, in that sense and the preservation community is and, and thanks to the good work of folks like you in Boston. So thanks for your good work and, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate it. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. 
This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>